So if you've looked at the bulletin as we begin, you've noticed that I have jumped ahead quite a few chapters in Revelation. We're going all the way to Revelation 20 today, and, and for those of you who are hopeful, no, I'm not just skipping over the tribulation. We'll go back. In fact, we'll cover this passage again more in more depth. There's a lot of just amazing prophecy, I think, in the Old Testament about what we're going to be looking at today that really enriches what we see here in Revelation 20, in these first six verses about the reign of Christ. But I was looking at what I was going to preach on today, and did I want to just jump out of Revelation completely and do something for the 4th of July? And I thought, you know, I have a lot of really great memories of the 4th of July. It happens to be my dad's birthday, and so we always celebrated it and I have a dad who loves fireworks and so which of course are very illegal in California where I grew up but most fourths we would spend in Ohio and they're illegal there too but we always drove and they're not illegal in Indiana so we would stop at the place right before the border and dad and I would set off fireworks and we would have a big meal and homemade ice cream and uh, just a lot of good memories of being with family and celebrating this nation that God has placed us in. You know, this is no accident that we were born here. It's no accident that we were born there. And this is our nation. And we, as we'll get to, I mean, it, so I wanted something encouraging today. And again, the trend of last week and seeing the heart of man has continued. And we saw another wonderful thing on Monday of last week that after everything that had happened the week before that on Monday the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a high school football coach who was praying on the 50-yard line after games and saying that denying him that ability denied his rights and it was another wonderful ruling but you see the hearts of the people and they just they're so enraged over their sin and their how they're viewing our government regulating things, that that just enraged them more. And again, I just don't feel like the America that I remember as a child. It's not the America I remember 10 years ago. I was thinking about this. I mean, on July 4th, today we are celebrating the day that the Declaration of Independence. I wanted to read some of it and thinking of what we're, where we're going today. It starts out and says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation." We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such a form 
as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, prudence, indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing forms to which we'll go on to talk about the long list of, as he calls it, of those rights that King George had done. And, but I mean, basically this is penned by Thomas Jefferson, but the Congressional Congress comes together and they, they make this decision that it is time to declare independence from England and their king. And they say, because we're doing that, we, we need to give the reason why. And Thomas Jefferson pens the Declaration of Independence. And those 56 men sign it. And this was an idea of what life should be like, of what government should be like, and it was different than anything else. And most governments were in existence to keep themselves in power, to enrich those who were in power, and to, you know, the people were just either a byproduct of that or they were the power used by those in government to keep power. And this was a different idea that all hinging on that one sentence that all men are created equal. This idea that goes to the fact that there is a God who is over all and he has created each of us and we are all created in his image. And therefore, because we are created in his image, we should have a government that is encouraging us and enabling us to pursue our life in him. And that to them, it was just such an obvious truth that it, he penned that it was self-evident. And anyone can see this. You can imagine if you were a colonist at that time and you had been living under the government that you had been living under that was taxing you and that was getting rich off of your work and you felt like it didn't matter how hard you worked that you couldn't get ahead. And then you read this. It would be inspiring. This idea of what it could be like if we had a government that wasn't seeking to serve itself, but seeking to serve its people. To enable its people to rise up themselves. We're now 246 years later. And in some ways we still see that, but in other ways we see, you know, politicians seem to be in it for themselves. I watched a, a video a couple days ago, this rant of, it was actually a very liberal Democrat, but his rant was on the fact that he's so angry over everything that's happening in our country right now, and the only response that he has seen from the Democrats that he holds in such high esteem is to send him fundraising letters. Well, this has happened, we need more money. This has happened, we need more money. They're not doing anything for what I want. They just want more money. And then he went on to list the personal net worth of five or six of the top Democrats. And I'm sure it would probably look the same if you were looking at the net worth of some of the Republicans who have been in office their whole lives. That they're there and they continue to be there and they continue to get wealthier and wealthier. And it just seems like they're just doing whatever they have to do to prolong their own hold on power. 
And it's interesting, from the very beginning of our country being formed, this Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, after the victory and the years after the victory as the government is formed and the Constitution is written, we see that they wrote a Constitution and added amendments to it that enabled these things to happen. And then you read what John Adams wrote, that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to government of any other. I mean, it takes the faith that we have, the ideas that we get from God's word, the truth that we get, the way that affects our lives. I mean, that's the only way that it can be governed. You can read all these quotes by founding fathers and constitutional historians that look at this idea that if you don't have those things, then you're very quick to give up rights for immediate change or immediate feeling of security. And things fall apart. The last quote as we're looking at this, I had actually never read this one before. It was by James Madison. He said that, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections? And it's true. I mean, our country, our nation, was founded on these biblical principles, and it changed life around the globe. And you look at the way God has worked through our nation and sent missionaries all over the globe for hundreds of years, and the other things, positive things, that our nation has done for other places. And yet, as human nature is reflected in our government, it's hard to look at those things and still feel like this is one nation under God. In fact, I think, you know, we, we went through judges, and you see the way the people continually turn from God, and we, we can't ever look down on them. This is, this is the heart of man. And as you get near the end of the book, it, it says repeatedly that there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. God wanted to be their king. You see that briefly under Joshua that through his faith and his leadership that God really did lead that nation and he used Joshua as his, but God was their king. And then as the nation falls farther and farther into the sin of the nations around them, that falls apart. And by the time you get to the end of the book, you're seeing these terrible atrocities that are taking place and there was no king. And then as you go throughout the story of Israel, you eventually see that they get a king that, like this, reflects who they were in King Saul, a king that looked like the kings of the nations around them. And then God provided King David, who, despite all of his faults, was a man after God's own heart and starts the Davidic line that will lead to the ultimate king. And that's what makes this message today, despite... Anything that may be going on around us, one of joy and hope, is that we have the hope of the Davidic king who will sit on a throne forever, and that we will get to live under his reign. Before we turn to Revelation, turn with me to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7, it says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Nef Naphtali with contempt, but later he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. 
You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor that is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle and cloaked rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord hosts. Heavenly Father, we thank you. These promises throughout the Old Testament and what we see here in Revelation and what Jesus promised that, that he was coming again, that he would set up his kingdom. God is throughout all of human history, as every human government has shown the heart of man, one day we will have a government that will be your heart, that it will be Jesus himself sitting on the throne, and that all things will bring glory to him and to you. Lord, bless this time as we open your word this morning. In Jesus. So our passage this morning, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign. This is the coming kingdom, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And in the timeline of this, in Revelation 19, we see Jesus physically returning to earth. That the rapture has taken place seven years before, that Jesus retrieves his church but he does not physically come to earth at that point but at the end of this seven-year tribulation he comes and the world gathers against him you know in any war you see this battle led to that battle and this victory and you can chart what happens here and there and how eventually a war is won or lost this is one battle that the earth for seven years has been living in this tribulation and falling under the leadership of the Antichrist and of Satan and opposing God in spite of his, the evidence being clear of who he is. And at the end, they will gather and Jesus will defeat them. And then he comes to this earth to reign. 
And that's what we're seeing. So verse 1 said, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So this is the start. I mean, there are some who do not take this as a thousand, literal thousand-year period. They view part of this as being the church age and that this is a lot of figurative language. Uh, throughout the book of Revelation, when John makes a transition like this, our translation there says then. I mean, in Greek, it's literally and. And he's moving from one, I saw this, and now I see this. This is a sequential timeline that John is giving us of exactly what he's seeing. That this great victory of Jesus happens over his enemies, and then this angel comes down, holding the key to the abyss and a great change in his hand. Verse 2, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So this angel comes down with the chain. I mean, this is, obviously, the chain is something we don't really understand. You can't bind a spirit being with a chain that we would know of, but this, this is something that's really happening. That as all of God's enemies are defeated, and the purposes that he has used Satan for throughout time that will bring glory to himself are finished for this moment, then he will send this angel who will bind Satan. There's no doubt, John leaves us no doubt as to who he is talking about, who this beast is. And he gives four titles that all point to it being the devil. In Revelation, dragon is, is actually the most commonly used form for Satan. See, the serpent of old pointing towards, I mean, this is someone who has been here throughout mankind's history. He's a created being. He's fallen, and he's been there since the beginning of mankind. He was the tempter of Adam and Eve. And then lastly, he gives the devil and Satan, which throughout the entire Bible are his most names. John, as he's writing to these churches that are experiencing all of this Again, the, the church age at this time was nothing but oppression on everything. And so that he's giving them this glorious hope of a future and what will happen. And Satan, who Peter warns, is a roaming lion ready to devour them, that he will be bound for a thousand years as God continues in his program for the end time. And again, I, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't take the thousand years here as a literal period of time. I think throughout Revelation, as we'll get to as we go throughout the tribulation period, and then we get to this and study it in depth and things in the future, that the numbers, so often, people want to allegorize them. To say that, well, that's just, that could mean this. Or that could mean that. And it, this is just the church age. It's a period of time. I mean, it says, it repeats this idea of a thousand years over and over. That this is a literal thousand-year period in God's timeline where Jesus Christ will be on this earth and we will be reigning. I remember when I was in seminary, I had to write a, a paper on, for my hermeneutics class on interpreting the Bible. And we had to do this research from one of the things I had to write on was allegorization. And I was reading this, this well-known theologian and his take on a whole bunch of stuff in Revelation and he went a couple chapters ahead of here 
when we're talking about when the, the new heaven and the new earth is formed and the new Jerusalem comes down on the new earth, and he gave the measurements that are given in Revelation and what those mean in our you know, understanding and saying that if the new heaven and the new earth is you know, roughly the same size as this, this earth, then the size of that new Jerusalem could not be literal because it would throw the planet off of its orbit. And so if that's allegorical, then we can know that other numbers in Revelation are allegorical. Huh? First of all, and we have no idea the size of the new earth. Second, even if it was smaller than this earth and God wanted to put a new Jerusalem on it that was ten times bigger than what he lists, I trust that he could keep the planet in orbit. And that when he gives us numbers, he's explaining something to us and that he's telling us what is to come. And so we can take this literally and take it to heart and take hope in it that before the new heaven and the new earth, on this earth, we will get to see Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of David, ruling and reigning, and Satan will be bound. He continues on the importance of that. Verse 3, And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. So Satan is bound, and he is thrown into the abyss. And like a tomb, it was sealed. There's no escape for him, and we don't have any idea of what this abyss is or what his experience is like in there, but we know that for a thousand years, the power and the dominion that he has been given over this earth during this time is taken away from him. And that he is kept away from mankind. And it's important, as John says there, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. And some time ago, I, I read that, the thing from Paul Harvey, If I Were the Devil. And I mean, it's so true. I mean, you look at, at what's happened in the last 60 years in this country with God being taken out of school. Darwinism being taught as a fact. You know, the Ten Commandments and other things taken out of the courthouses. Prayer being taken out of school. And then from that, as we get generations down the line, the, the God has no, there's no concept of reality associated with God throughout most of the people in our nation. That Satan has wormed his way in and he has deceived the nation. And he's done this throughout the history of mankind. I mean, from the very beginning, he deceived Adam and Eve. Throughout history, he has deceived men, he has deceived nations. He has turned people against God. I am so thankful for my upbringing and the fact that I was taught these things as truth and I believe them. And as I've grown, I've not only seen its power in my own life, I can see the way that this Bible, God's revelation to us, relates to the world around me, and I can't understand how you people don't get it. But they're deceived. That in spite of God's love for them, that all they see is oppression, and that he can't be a good God if I see this and that. And that no answer is good enough because their minds are deceived. Well, luckily, the power of God's Holy Spirit is stronger than anything Satan could ever imagine, and so we keep loving, and we keep keep giving 
But during this period of time, God has allowed Satan to have this dominion that man gave up when they sinned. And that he is roaming this earth and that he, he hates us and he hates God and he hates his agenda and he does whatever he can to deceive us from who God is, from his perfectness, from his holiness, most especially from his love. But in this time that John is writing about to these churches who are under immense oppression, who are seeing their loved ones killed, who are seeing their livelihoods taken away, who are facing all of these things, that John says, eventually, he's going to be bound. He will no longer be able to deceive the nations. But then there, as will be shown later in this chapter, it says at the end, after these things, he must be that All of these things are in God's agenda that bring glory to himself, because he is the one who is worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, to receive. So it's, it may be hard for us to understand why is Satan allowed to roam the earth? Why will he be released to deceive again for a very short time? We know that God is good. And we know that we can trust him. And that's really the only answer that we can have. That all of this is shining light onto who he is as opposed to the darkness. Verse 4. Then I saw the thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand. So the next thing that John sees, again, he gives us very little details about life in the millennial kingdom, but the next thing he sees is thrones and people sitting on them. And these thrones are like the, the picture of a town in this time where the, those who would rule and judge sat on these high chairs at the city gates and people would come to them with their problems and they would rule from these. And again, this is this picture of the believers who were overcomers that we have looked at throughout the churches in the first couple books. We've talked about it several other times in Romans 8. And this idea of, of reigning with Christ and that promise that he gave to his disciples that because of what they had given up, because of what he knew that they would give up, that they would sit on 12 thrones and rule over the tribe of Israel. He continues, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with... Again, we... Just last week, John had this vision as God is beginning to pour out his judgment on the earth as we see the riders on the horses and the Antichrist is beginning to take power on the earth and that there are already martyrs for their faith and their souls are crying out, how long, God, until you come and you take judgment on this earth? And now judgment has come. Jesus has come and defeated his enemies and John's those souls, those faithful souls who in their own right were overcomers because they did not take the mark. They stood for their faith and they lost their lives because of it. They are resurrected and for their faithfulness they reign for a thousand. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Obviously not the first overall resurrection. We have seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead 
we've seen the rapture where both the living and the dead of the church believers before are raised and given their eternal bodies. But in this vision he has of what is to come, that there are two resurrections here. This first one is of the believers who were killed during the tribulation. The second one that will come is those unbelievers who will be raised for the great white throne judgment later in this chapter. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in this first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Throughout Revelation there are what we would call beatitudes, blessed are. This is the this is blessed are these who get to take part in that resurrection. They lived for their faith during this the most terrible time on earth's history, and they are raised as we saw in one of the letters to the churches, this figure of speech saying that the second death, this death that we all understand that physically we all die, but this second death of, of being eternally separated from God, of facing eternal punishment for the sins that were never cleansed by Jesus' blood, that it has no power over them, meaning it's, it's so far removed from even being a thought. That they aren't not only in danger of that, they are, are raised in these glorified bodies and they get to reign with Jesus. They have this elevated position of reigning with him on this earth for a thousand years. They have received deliverance, but they have also... And it says that they will be priests of God. And you think, you know, throughout the Old Testament, that as God set up the temple and the order of priests, that they were only ones that had access to him. That as these priests, they will have this access and this closeness and this... We don't exactly understand how reigning is here, but we understand that in, in Jesus' worldview from when he was on this earth, which will continue into his reign, that is to, to reign, to rule, to be over someone, is to, that they will be given opportunity to serve. This is so different from what, when we think of ruling, we think of the king sitting on his throne barking commands, not caring about the people. And that isn't at all the picture here. That's not the picture of what will be on his throne or those that he allows to reign with. It is a picture of service and love. So again, I mean, this, these six verses that view this thousand-year period, which is followed by one more rebellion as Satan is released, one more final defeat, and then God's, the great white throne judgment, where the unbelievers are judged, and then the earth and heaven is destroyed, and we see a new chapter the book. You see this glorious picture of what our eternal... But before we get there, we see that on this earth, peace... So another funny thing, this was a short video, and it, was, it said something about how, you know, for thousands of years, mankind enjoyed peace and harmony with each other, and then they had to go and invent the gun. And there's nothing but war or anything ever since. Well, that's obviously not true. In, the Bib- in God's revelation to us in the Bible, in Genesis, the first two children, one kills the other one. This is mankind. We are not, because of sin and pride and all of these things that sin manifests in our life, we're not peaceful. 
that no human leadership will ever lead to peaceful prosperity. And yet as Isaiah prophesied of Jesus, that the increase of his government will never end. That this peace is, that is coming to this earth, this thousand year period right here, I don't, I don't think we could even describe it or know what it will be like to have Jesus physically again on this earth, but not as a humble servant, but as the almighty God sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning. I said that, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence was this idea of what government should look like, of why it was necessary for them to separate from England because they had this vision of what government should be. God, our creator, made a, a declaration of what things will be. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their hearts. I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Jesus, at the the Last Supper, as he initiated the Lord's Supper, when he talked about the, uh, the cup, he said that it's his blood of the new covenant that he was initiating something new when he was shedding his blood on the cross make no mistake this is a promise to Israel but we are beneficiaries of that covenant that that it was started at the cross and as we see as far as Israel is from God today that when this tribulation happens this huge section of the book of Revelation that we'll be going through, watching God pour out judgment on the earth and watching the earth reject God. That through all of that, as we will see actually in the next chapter in Revelation in this sort of, that God will be bringing Israel back to himself, that he will miraculously save 144,000 Jews, and that through the tribulation, Israel will be purified and brought back to himself. And those promises that God made to Abraham will come to fulfillment in the That as we take hope in this perfect reign, we also take hope in knowing that our God is a God who keeps his promises. That he knows what the end brings, and so he's able to tell us, and we can know that it brings a glorious, that he will keep his promises to Israel, but we get to take part. We will be there in that kingdom. No matter what is happening in our nation or our world, as believers, we can know what is coming because God has told us. We don't have to hope in a politician or a law being changed, although we can take joy in seeing some of these things happen. That's not where our ultimate hope rests. Our ultimate hope rests in Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us, and that through our faith in him, we'll spend eternity with him, and we will know that we can know that he will return and he will reign, that we will finally have a perfect government. Satan will no longer be deceiving the nation. We'll be under a king who is perfect in his love for us 
and his justice and his statutes. So we need to take hope. I love the 4th of July. I will celebrate the 4th of July. I will celebrate our nation. Take joy in the way that God has used this nation over the last couple hundred years. I pray for our nation. But one last passage, Philippians 3, verses 17 to 21. Philippians 3, starting in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. That sounds a lot like what we see on the news that vocal part of our nation that is making its voice heard through a media that supports their side of you. But there are many in our nation who aren't that. Though while we may rejoice that God has placed us in this nation to live our lives, a nation with freedoms, a nation with a heritage that comes from his word, that no matter what happens in the future to our country, verse 20, for our citizenship, is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to him. That's coming. He's coming back. He will transform everything. And we'll get to live through it and see it and be a part of it Praise God for our country, pray for our country, but praise him all the more that our true citizen is in heaven. Our true citizenship will be realized when Jesus returns to this earth and puts everything under his subjection.